Alright, <clears throat> we are getting back to our series on the 1689 Baptist Confession this evening. We are in chapter 8, section 1. Give you a moment to get there. Chapter 8, section 1. Christ the Mediator. Alright, chapter 8, section 1 says this, <clears throat> God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them, to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose him to be prophet, priest, and king, and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by him. I'll go ahead and tell you guys the goal tonight is we want to get through the first sentence. <laughs> that's, that's the hope. I'm not making any promises. <laughs> I, I, I'm, only, I'm not really kidding when I say that. I'm not making any promises. Okay, maybe we'll make it. All right. It starts off, God was pleased in his eternal purpose. The first thing the divines bring to our attention in this chapter is that the mission and the work of Christ on behalf of his people was something God purposed from eternity past with the reason being that it pleased him. So think of that for a moment. Before he ever created us, he knew that these creatures of the dirt would become prideful and rebel. And yet, it was pleasing to God that he should save some of fallen humanity through his son. Scripture tells us in Isaiah 53.10 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, him being Christ. He has put him to grief. Another thing that jumps off the page is that, again, we see the salvation of the elect was God's plan and purpose all along. It's not like plan A with Adam failed, and so now God has to send his son for plan B. No, this was God's plan all along. So a few passages on that. Uh, Romans eight twenty nine. <clears throat> Romans eight twenty nine. So the he in this verse is the Father. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the foreknowledge and the predestination of God are prior to creation. So it was God's purpose before he created that he foreknew or loved beforehand a certain people. And because he loved this certain people, he chose to put his love on this people out of nothing but pure choice on his part. 
because of that, he predestined those people to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, this was all about Christ from the get-go. God's purpose in creation was all about God. And God's purpose in the salvation of his people is all about God. And if you want to break that down a little more, particularly the father loves this people. But even more than that, he loves his son. And so he gives this people to the son. And he gives his people to the son that we would be conformed to his image. And that he would be the firstborn, that is the preeminent among many brothers. Brothers. We're in the family. Another passage which you can go ahead and laugh, but yes, Ephesians. Um, <clears throat> but it would be uh, some kind of horrible crime if I just talking about this and I just skip over this passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And remember, what we're looking at here is specifically, this was God's purpose all along, to save the elect in Christ. This was not plan B. This was the plan, the only plan. Alright, so Ephesians chapter 1, and then picking up in verse 3, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, that's the key, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. So still, this is in Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But the purpose for that was that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So you see the pattern in this so far. This is the blessing and it's in Christ. This is the blessing and it's through Christ. In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, again, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Just read that passage and I think that makes the point. Over and over again, before time began, this was God's purpose. That we would receive all of these blessings in Christ to the end that Christ is the one who has all things united in him. Christ is the one who's made preeminent. So our salvation is about Jesus. It's not about us. 
And this has always been God and the Father's purpose. Another related passage, Colossians chapter 1. Um, particularly, I wanted us to look at verses 16 through 18, but I'm actually going to just back up to 15. So Colossians 15 through uh, 1, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Alright, it says, He, that being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's not talking about literally birth there. That's talking about preeminence. Okay, and that'll become clear as you keep reading. For by Him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So it's explicitly stated at the end there. So this is talking about the preeminence of Christ and the fact that creation exists for Christ. Anything on that before we go to the next portion? All right. Next part of the uh, confession, it says this, to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. So as we will cover in more detail in this chapter as we go along, it is only the Lord Jesus who could fulfill the role as the mediator between God and man. R.C. Sproul comments, quote, When we hear words like choose and ordain with respect to God's work, we normally think of the doctrine of predestination or more specifically, election. In trying to sort through this biblical doctrine, we often make election an abstract concept removed from its redemptive context. But through election, God begins to bring about his eternal plan of redemption. The first elected one is Jesus himself, the firstborn of many brethren. Believers are chosen in Christ Jesus to participate in the benefits that the Father will bestow on the Son. End quote. And I think we just read plenty of passages to say that that is in fact the case. I did not include any more passages. I think we just covered it. Anything on that? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next part in describing Christ describes him as. His only begotten Son. This is one of the keys to understanding why God chose the Lord Jesus to be our mediator. Again, Sproul comments, quote, People are repulsed by the idea that there is only one way of salvation. But the fact is that one man qualifies to be the mediator. 
No one but Christ has the necessary qualifications to effect reconciliation between God and man. Missing from all other religions is an atonement that satisfies the justice of God. They have only men. Christianity alone has a God-man. One who shares in both the nature of God and the nature of our humanity. End quote. Sproul was exactly correct in that statement. The only one who qualifies to reconcile God with man is the one in whose person God and man are reconciled. Think of that for a moment. In his very person, God and man are reconciled. <clears throat> because of the hypostatic union, and if you don't know what that means, really... Briefly, that is the union of the God nature with the human nature and the one person of Christ. We're going to cover that in a little more detail in this chapter as well. But because of the hypostatic union, Jesus has a fully divine nature and a fully human nature, which natures are not mixed or mingled in any way. And for that reason, we say that Jesus is truly God and truly man, the divine and the human reconciled in one person. Anything on that? Okay. The next thing the confession says, it this uh, was brought about according to the covenant made between them, particularly the Father and the Son. This references the covenant of redemption that we covered in the last chapter. Uh, this was the eternal intertrinitarian covenant made within the being of God between the divine persons. Now, I talked to you about that the confession only mentions a covenant between Father and Son, but I made the argument that that actually also includes the Holy Spirit as well. This was the covenant planned by the Father and accomplished by the Son who was sustained by the Holy Spirit for the redemption of the elect to the glory of God. You will recall, I hope, maybe you don't, it's okay, we're about to go over it again, that we covered Charles Hodges' listing of the conditions of the covenant, which were these. Number one, the Son was to assume our nature, humbling himself to be born of a woman and to be found in fashion as a man. This was to be a real incarnation, not a mere theophany, such as occurred repeatedly under the old dispensation. He was to become flesh, to take part of flesh and body, to be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, made in all things like unto his brethren, yet without sin, that he might be touched with a sense of our infirmities and able to sympathize with those who are tempted, being himself tempted also. In other words, for him to be our mediator, he had to be like us. He had to have our nature. Um, this becomes, uh, I think, abundantly clear when you think about covenant theology, which I'm not going to, I'm going to try anyway, to not go too far in depth on that since we just covered it. But think about this for a moment. We receive, those in a covenant receive the blessings or curses of a covenant based on our relationship to the federal head. Okay, Christ could not be our federal head if he was not one of us. We are fallen in Adam. Adam was a man. So it had to be a man where we 
are rescued from that fall, where we are saved. So Christ had to become human in order to save us. Number two on Hodge's list. Uh, yeah. Absolutely it is. Um, and Actually, this is not in my notes, but I just thought of something. I'm actually going to share a passage with you guys just that's making that point. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to go there with me. I'll go ahead and finish uh, what Hodge had to say, and then I'll read that passage, okay? So, again, these are the conditions of the uh, covenant of redemption, which is the inter-Trinitarian covenant between the persons of the Holy Trinity. So that was the first condition. Second condition, he, Christ, was to be made under the law, voluntarily undertaking to fulfill all righteousness by obeying the law of God perfectly in all the forms in which it had been made obligatory on man. Okay, that makes sense also, because think about it. How did we fall in Adam? He broke the law of the covenant, right? Okay, so in order for our new covenant head to save us, he had to keep the law that Adam broke. All right? And then condition number three, he was to bear our sins, to be a curse for us, offering himself as a sacrifice or propitiation to God in expiation of the sins of men. This involved his whole life of humiliation, sorrow, and suffering, and his ignominious death upon the cross under the hiding of his father's countenance. What he was to do after this pertains to his exaltation and reward. So that also makes sense. So on the one hand, he had to keep the law so we would have righteousness. On the other hand, he had to take the penalty of the law because we broke it. So there had to be a satisfaction of justice. All right? So from this we see that the covenant of redemption is a covenant of works whereby Christ is required to keep the law of the covenant to earn its rewards. And the rewards of this covenant are resurrection, exaltation, and a people for himself. It is within the context of this covenant that Christ is appointed as mediator for his elect people in the covenant of grace. Christ kept this covenant of works and thereby became our mediator. The covenant of grace. Okay? Resurrection, exaltation, and a people for himself. All right. The, uh, the passage that I wanted to share with you that just came to my mind. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 and verses 21 and 22. It says this. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. To the point that Paul's making there is death came by a man, so the resurrection of the dead also had to come by a man. <clears throat> all die in the man, Adam. So all in Christ are made alive. Christ the man. Absolutely. Well, and in fact, if you keep reading in the same chapter, that, that's, that language is actually used. Um, uh, let me see. Let's go down to verse 45. 
to, to actually see that. So that same chapter, verse 45, thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, but both of them are men. You see that? As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. But again, in each one of these, they're both men. So that's important to understand. Like, Yes, we do affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. Absolutely we do. But we don't want to affirm that and then completely neglect the humanity of Jesus Christ. So we often hear it uh, put... He was fully God and fully man. And while I prefer the term truly God and truly man, nevertheless, the idea is correct. He had a fully divine nature. And he had a fully human nature. And the fully human nature was fully human. It really was. Um, and they were not mixed or mingled. So it wasn't that the divine and the human came together to form some third substance. Absolutely not. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um Okay, is there anything else we need to add on that portion? Okay. All right, so the next thing. So he was uh, appointed by God the Father because it pleased God the Father according to the covenantal transaction between them. He was appointed to be the mediator between God and humanity. And this is what we've been working towards. So one of the definitions Merriam-Webster's dictionary offers for the verb to mediate is that it is, quote, to interpose between parties in order to reconcile them, end quote. That perfectly describes what Jesus has done. He interposes between God and man, takes away the hostility, and brings loving fellowship in its place. This is going to be rather lengthy, and actually I thought about this after I'd already left to come here, but um, Jonathan Edwards lists the following ways in which fallen man is at enmity with God. Um, what I thought about was, maybe if I can find it again, I will post that to the Facebook page, the source that I got this from, because he goes in a whole lot more depth than what I'm about to, just for the sake of time, but... He doesn't just talk about the ways in which he talks about the depth in which we're opposed to God. and it, It's very lengthy, very good, but very lengthy. So I may post that, and if anybody wants it that's not on Facebook, let me know. Uh, but anyway, let me get to the list. So Edwards uh, lists these ways in which fallen man is at enmity with God. He says, quote, their enmity appears in their judgments, their natural relish, their wills, affections, and practice. Okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and say this. All of this is a quote from him, okay? I'm jumping around within the sermon, but all of this is Edward's words, okay? All right, so first, judgments. They entertain very low and contemptible thoughts of God. Whatever honor and respect they may pretend and make a show of towards God, if their practice be examined, it will show that they certainly look upon him as a being that is but little to be regarded. They count him worthy neither to be loved nor feared. They dare not behave 
uh, with that slight and disregard towards one of their fellow creatures. When a little raised above them in power and authority as they dare and do towards God. The idea being, say the president comes here. Okay? Thank you say, say the majority of people, if not 100% of the people in this room, not really fans of that guy. However, if you walked in this room, there would probably be a lot of respect just because he's the president. So, um, that's the idea that Edwards is getting towards is just by virtue of the elevation by whatever authority, we show respect to our fellow creatures that we wouldn't even show to God. That, that's his idea. He says, they value one of their equals much more than God and are ten times more afraid of offending such than of displeasing the God that made them. They cast such exceeding contempt on God as to prefer every vile lust before him. And every worldly enjoyment is set higher in their esteem than God. A morsel of meat or a few pence of worldly gain is preferred before him. God is set last and lowest in the esteem of natural men. So natural relish or the idea there is what gives us enjoyment or pleasure. That's what natural relish is aimed toward. They have an inbred distaste and disrelish of God's perfections. God is not such a being as they would have. Though they are ignorant of God, yet from what they hear, uh, what they hear they of him, and from what is manifest by the light of nature, they do not like him. By his being endowed with such attributes as he is, they have an aversion to him. They hear God is an infinitely holy, pure, and righteous being, and they do not like him upon this account. They have no relish of such qualifications. They take no delight in contemplating him. Romans 1. I'm not going to read it, but Romans 1. Okay, fallen human will. Their wills are contrary to his will. God's will and theirs are exceeding across to across the one to the other. God's will... Uh, excuse me. God wills those things that they hate and are most averse to, and they will those things that God hates. Hence, they oppose God in their wills. There is a dreadful, violent, and obstinate opposition of the will of natural men to the will of God. Their affections. However free from it the heart may seem to be, when let alone and secure, yet a very little thing will set it in a rage. Temptations will show what is in the heart. The alteration of a man's circumstances will often discover the heart. Pharaoh had no more natural enmity against God than other men. And if other natural men had been in Pharaoh's circumstances, the same corruptions would have put forth themselves in a dreadful or in as dreadful a manner. The scribes and Pharisees had naturally no more malice in their hearts against Christ than other men. And other natural men would, in their case, and having as little restraint, exercise as much malice against Christ as they did. When wicked men come to be cast into hell, then their malice against God will appear. Then their hearts will appear as full of malice as hell is full of fire. But when wicked men come to be in hell, there will be no new corruptions put into their heart. 
but only old ones will then break forth without restraint. That is all the difference between a wicked man on earth and a wicked man in hell. That in hell there will be no more, or excuse me, there will be more to stir up the exercise of corruption and less to restrain it than on earth. But there will be no new corruption put in. A wicked man will have no principle of corruption in hell but what he carried to hell with him. There are now the seeds of all the malice that will be exercised then. The malice of damned spirits is but a branch of the root that is in the hearts of natural men now. A natural man has a heart like the heart of a devil. Only corruption is more under restraint in man than in devils. Fortunately, Edwards mints words a little bit. Practice. Human practice. In their enmity against God, they are exceeding active. They are engaged in war against God. Indeed, they cannot injure God, for he is so much above them, but yet they do what they can. They oppose themselves to his honor and glory. They oppose themselves to the interest of his kingdom in the world. They oppose themselves to the will and command of God, and they oppose him in his government. They oppose, him, uh, they oppose God in his works and in his declared designs. Gender identity problems? Yes, okay. While he is doing one work, they are doing the contrary. God seeks one thing and they seek directly the contrary. They list under Satan's banner and are his willing soldiers in opposing the kingdom of God. Not a nice little picture of humanity. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's an accurate picture of fallen humanity. And I want us to see that from the scriptural witness. That was Jonathan Edwards. Is that wicked men for their own destruction? Say what now? Is that one of his sermons? It is one of his sermons. I do not recall the title. I'll, I'm going to try to find it, though. If you want it, let me know. I've got to try to send it to you. I think it's wicked men are Okay. I, I forgot the title. I should have made a note to myself, but I did not. But yes, that is a sermon from Edwards. Yes. But as much as I respect Edwards, and I do, Edwards was but a man, so he could be an error. So let's look at the scriptural witness to these things to see that, in fact, he was not. Uh, well, you know, recently, John MacArthur wrote a letter to Gavin Newsom, and I highly recommend reading it, and I'll leave it there for right now. Um, I wholeheartedly agree, though. Yeah. Uh, okay, Romans chapter 30 is where we're going to start. Again, we're, this is the scriptural witness to man's enmity with God, his separation from God. His being the enemy of God. Romans chapter 3. And uh, the verses we're going to be looking at are verses 9 through 18. So Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. All right, it says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, 
both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, went back to the Old Testament. So this is scripture quoting scripture. So scripture says this twice, which means this is important. Okay. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. In case the no one was unclear, he comes under it and says, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, staying in Romans, let's go to Romans chapter 8 again. But this time we're looking at verses 7 and 8. So Romans chapter 8. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and back up, and I'm going to start at verse 5, but particularly pay attention to verses 7 and 8. But we're going to read Romans 8, 5 through 8. Alright, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's why I backed up. I wanted you to get that part. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's not neutral. Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's the nature of the thing. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Alright. Back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. And these will be uh, verses 1 through 3. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. All right, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Okay. Think about that for a minute. The course of this whole world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Under the domain of Satan. Just like Edward said, right? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body. Okay, again. That's what Edward said. The passions lead to the actions. And the passions, we carried them out. And the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this... Uh, 
again, if it, it's repeating. In case it wasn't clear the first time when he says, this is the course of the whole world. Then he says, this is the way that the rest of mankind is. Those who are not born again, if they're not in that category of born again, that's a description of mankind. Well, that's what I was going to say. So, I would say this. It, it is sad. So, I will say there's a kernel of truth in there. It is sad that men were that wicked then. But it's also sad that nothing's changed in 2,000 years um, as far as man's nature apart from God. Now, I do think things have changed. I think in some ways, well, I don't think it's all bad. I think some of it's bad. In some ways, yes, Um Wickedness may have progressed because the very thought that we can tell God how we identify. Yeah, you made a mistake on this. Yes, I, I know. Well, either to say I know better than God or, in my opinion, worse, to try to say that God doesn't make mistakes. He made me this, but he made me with the destiny to become that. Wow. <laughs> you know, Um so in that sense, yeah, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe evil has gotten worse in a sense. But then also, I think the church of Jesus Christ has grown exponentially in that amount of time, and we can't ignore that is a great good. So I don't think it's all bad, um, but the good that's there is because of Christ. So that's my two cents on that. Um, one other verse on. Our enmity with God, apart from his saving grace. James chapter 4 and verse 4. It says this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? World's pretty all-encompassing, huh? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay. So friendship with the world is to be an enmity and to be an enemy of God. Now that's the enmity on man's side. Now I want to look at the enmity on God's side. On the other side, God is holy and he hates the wicked. And if you think that's too strong, I'm about to read the passages to you. That's not my words. That's the words of scripture. So let's look at uh, Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5. Or the fifth Psalm, however you prefer to say it. <laughs> Yes, they're uh, individual songs, actually. So Psalm chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6. Psalm chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, it says this, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, talking about God. You hate all evildoers, all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But we just read over in Romans that that's everybody that's not born again, right? Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Jumping off of what Seth said a while ago, um, that kind of goes in the face of God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Absolutely. Well, uh, the way that Sproul would, I heard Sproul address that question this way. Uh, who does he throw in hell, the sin or the sinner? <clears throat> and then even if you want to think about that in terms of the elect too, still when he punishes sin, he punishes a person. He does. Right. So thankfully, it's a substitute. It's not me. <laughs> but still, he punishes a person, not just a concept, mm -hmm. not an action, but a person. All right. Another uh, another passage. This will be Psalm chapter seven. It's real close. Ch uh, Psalm chapter seven and verses eleven through. Uh, we'll just go ahead and say seventeen, really through sixteen. But it's just one more verse. So we'll just tack it on. Um, okay, so Psalm 7, 11 through 16. It says, God is a righteous judge. That's why we're in enmity with him. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This is the language of war. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Okay. 
Uh, Psalm 11. Just one verse here. Psalm 11, verse 5. Okay. It says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul, the very intimate, most intimate part of his being, the core of his being, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. It doesn't say he hates the sins of the one who loves violence. It says he hates the one who loves violence. He hates the wicked. All right, and then one more also in Psalms, Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verse 20. It says, The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Again, he doesn't destroy their sins, he destroys them. All right. So I hope all of that establishes that man in his fallen, natural state is at enmity with a just and holy God. So, it is the great work of Christ, according to the plan of the Father, that he would reconcile us with God. What Christ accomplishes is, in the words of J.I. Packer, the traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. So, a few passages on this, and then we'll close. So Romans chapter 5, we're looking at verses 1, and then we'll skip down to verses 6 through 8. So Romans chapter 5, I'm going to look at verse 1 and then skip down to verses 6 through 8. All right, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We read the psalm, the language of war, but now through Christ, we are at peace with God. And then skip down to verse 6. It says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, then, um, of course, the Bible verse that everyone in the South knows by heart, John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. All right, and then back in Romans chapter 3. We read that passage in Romans chapter 3, talking about how absolutely terrible we are. 
Then Romans chapter 3 also says this, picking up in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, so this is the plan of the Father, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just he punishes sin and the justifier, he makes us righteous of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice how all of these blessings are always seem to be attached somewhere in the passage, which explicitly stated it's in or through Jesus. Um, okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 18 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. And again, we're looking at how Christ breaks down the wall of separation between us and God. He takes away the enmity between us and God. It says this, All this is from God, who through Christ, see it again, reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then again, we read how horrible we are in Ephesians 2. So now I want to go back to Ephesians 2 and read some really good news. Ephesians 2, picking up with verse 13. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 13. Says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. So that's peace between Jew and Gentile. And Mike, here it is. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's hostility between God and man, whether Jew or Gentile. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Packer said, given the family name, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now, far from being his enemies, we're made his sons, we're made citizens, we're made the very temple of God where he abides. And then one final uh, passage, and then we'll close. Colossians chapter 1. So we read 15 through 18 a moment ago, so we're going to pick up with 19 now. Colossians chapter 1, 19 through 23. says this, For in him that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's outright saying hostile toward God. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh, and there's the importance of him being human, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Anything anybody want to add to that? So the good news is we did make it through that first session. <laughs> we did make it. All right. Anything else before we close? All right. And we'll Measuring. Measuring in what way? That you people say that You're saying what to, how to how to discern a real Christian from a fake Christian? Is that what you're meaning? Well, the steadfastness there is the hanging on to the hope. Yeah. <laughs> um. That, that's a steadfastness that you're steadfast because you're in Christ. So even that, even, even your steadfastness is in Christ. Like it's not uh, a measure of you necessarily. It's more so 
Christ does that. So, okay, my really quick answer to that, this will be my really quick answer to that, okay? So just as the unregenerate man has a fallen nature and he acts according to that nature, the regenerate man has a redeemed nature and he acts according to that nature. So the argument against that is regeneration. Once we are born again, we act according to those new desires. Now, of course, we've already gone over, but uh, sometimes this is, well, not sometimes, this is a process in this life of sanctification so that you have that struggle between the old and the new man. Yes. Okay, I'm not saying it's like instant perfection. Yeah. Exactly. Because there is an internal war. That's, that's exactly it. There's an internal war. So... Christ, in Christ, well, in Christ, we're new creatures. Um, yes, we're alive in Christ. So, yeah, there will be a war there, but the presence of that war is an indicator of genuine salvation. So, all right, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll be done for this evening. Father in heaven above, again we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've just studied, we are thankful that we can. Um, we know that the only way that we can come to you in prayer like this is in Jesus Christ. And so for him, for his work as our mediator, um, our prophet, priest, our king, our savior, our Lord, we are so thankful. Father, I pray that you would continue to bless us as we go through this uh, chapter of the confession, uh, this most important chapter of the confession. And help us to understand and come to know and love our Lord Jesus better than when we started. Again, it is in his name we pray these things. Amen.